everybody. Welcome to the CNM podcast, where media and communication matters. And we consider the tensions, possibilities and effects of contemporary media. We are the Department of Communication and New Media from the National University of Singapore, and I'm your host, Rosemary Overell. Today, we're also collaborating with the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, or FAS, to really showcase FAS's interdisciplinary nature. Our guests today are Jonathan Sim from the Department of Philosophy and Sabayan Mukherjee, who's from the Department of Communication and New Media. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about them in just a moment. But first up, I'm going to tell you the topic of today's discussion, which is the topic on everybody's lips, especially those in academia and students as well, which is the infamous or famous chat GPT. Okay, so let's find out a little bit more about our guests. Uh, Jonathan Sim is a lecturer with the Department of Philosophy at NUS, where he teaches Chinese philosophy and the philosophy of computing and data analytics to both undergraduates and working professionals. He is passionate about preparing his students to make an impact in society Um, And he has been mentoring and supervising many humanities and social science students for corporate internships in tech-related roles. And he has also been training many undergrads to become effective and engaging educators under the University Teachings Opportunities Program, or UTOP. For his passion in sharing the joys of philosophy and his knowledge of philosophy across a spectrum of applied issues, he has been invited to discuss philosophical issues about education, AI and technology, and its social implications for Channel News Asia, China Global TV Network, The Financial Times, The South China Morning Post and Today News. So welcome, Jonathan. Hello, thank you for having me on board. It's a pleasure. And our next guest is Subayan Mukherjee. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and New Media at NUS, and he does research in computational communication, studying digital media and its audiences, and he teaches quantitative methods and data communication modules to undergrads and working professionals. His research on news consumption and social media has appeared in top international journals, such as the Journal of Communication, Political Communication, Social Networks, International Journal of Press and Politics, to name but a few. And he's also been featured by reputable popular media outlets from around the world. He's passionate about data and tech in general, and it's complicated and perennially evolving relationship with humankind. So we've got two very well-equipped guests today who are interested in this intersection between media technology, computational technology, and the human. Now, ChatGPT has been described by Director Guillermo del Toro as an insult to life itself, Whilst others have said this is the dawning of a kind of fourth wave of perhaps a new media age uh, akin to the the introduction of the Gutenberg press, that this is forever going to change media and how we communicate. So today we're going to ask a few key questions to our guests and have a think about and tease out some of the issues around chat GPT. So firstly, let's get our orientations right. What is chat GPT? 
Sabayan, I think you might be best equipped to explain this, particularly the technical encoding parts of it. Um, how does chat, chat GPT work? Where did it come from and which databases might it draw on? Thanks, Rosie, for firstly having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, wonderful to uh, have this opportunity to talk about ChatGPT, as if not enough people are talking about it already. So uh, ChatGPT is essentially an AI-based um, chatbot. It's based on something called GPT-3. And GPT-3 stands for a Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. It's a three stands for the third generation of a large language model, or LLM, produced by OpenAI. Uh, and so uh, unlike previous, you know, deep learning uh, language models, uh, it's a transformer. And that's what makes it so interesting in that it doesn't process a text sequentially. So when, it, when a simple example is, say, translating from one language to another. Say, I ask you, what's your name? Um, if I were to translate that to a different language, I could go ahead with translating the individual words as they appear. What is your name? And that might give the correct answer, but it's not how someone in that language would probably be asking the same question, right? So what ChatGPT does, or what GPT-3 does in general, is that it processes the whole sentence as a in one chunk, and then it uses something called um, attention uh, mechanism to kind of infer the context surrounding the individual words, and then uh, strings them together in a way that makes the final output not just coherent, but also meaningful as if um, a person was saying it, right? So it's not a naive translation of, it's not naively kind of looking up words and then saying, okay, how, how, how is this word in this language and so on, but uh, much more uh, takes a holistic look at um, the, the whole input data that it is given, right? Uh, so uh, the way it works is, I mean, I could, I don't want to talk too much about the details, but basically the, it's, it's a, it's a semi-supervised machine learning model. So the first step is unsupervised learning where it just, it's given massive amounts of data and it just looks at all of it and figures out patterns. And then there is, there is some human input that is used um, to kind of rate the good results that it produces based on the unsupervised learning, right? And then the human feedback is fed back into the machine so that um, it kind of gets better at um, understanding which is a good result and what is a bad result, right? And that's the human, so, which is why it's semi-supervised. And then finally for chat GPT, the developers also added another layer of supervised learning where people mimicked conversations between um, you know, people in a way. And so this told and kind of it labeled um, someone talking as the machine and someone else talking as a person. And then it used these annotations to know how humans converse in a normal kind of setting. And it's kind of, so it kind of added this layer of supervised learning on top of GPT-3 to make it a chatbot. Whoa, that is extremely complicated, but so interesting. And as you say, it's, it's not as though it's come out of the ether from above or below, it's working through, there is a human element here, yeah. including our own kind of um, input and play with it, which leads me to my next question. I might get Jonathan uh, to kick off here. Have either of you played around with chat GPT, like maybe doing some quirky experiments or something fun with, with its uh, abilities? 
Yeah, actually, I've uh, played with ChatGPT quite a bit. Uh, initially, the first time when I played with it, I asked it, you know, write me a story about a pig and a robot uh, making friends with each other and, you know, exploring existential issues. And wow, I, you, you know, to, to watch the words pop out one by one on the screen, uh, it was very, very compelling. And uh, the story was actually very engaging. Um, I've, I, I've also tried make, getting it to write songs, you know, like, oh, write a song about uh, utilitarianism, you know, one of the ethical theories in philosophy. And it was quite entertaining to read it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's actually very, very powerful. And, you know, initially when I first played with it to get, uh, because people were saying, oh, it's a cheat too and stuff like that. So I went to play with it and I tried to, to get it to generate some essays. And I look at the essays and I was like, okay, it's not great. It's not bad either. Then... Later on, I talked to some of my students and they're saying, oh, do you know, actually, if you uh, prompt it this way or that way, it can generate better. Then I look at them and I was like, really? So I give it a try and I was like, oh, wow. So one of the things that really uh, stood out to me was that our students are actually uh, uh, learning how to use it very, very effectively and, and they're getting very, very good at it. Yeah, I've found that too. I had a student write in mid-semester feedback that they'd used ChatGPT to help consolidate their understanding of Foucault's idea of biopower. So obviously there's enough data in there about biopower to, I mean, and he's admitting it, so he's saying it was helpful to him. Um, so I might actually follow up with a question to Jonathan. Um, in previous interviews you've done uh, with uh, Channel News Asia, you've positioned ChatGPT as a fellow classmate to your students. Can you explain your approach to ChatGPT in the classroom? Sure. Um, I, I think the issue is, you know, when, when we're faced with a with an AI tool like this, sometimes we don't know how to see it in relation to what we're doing. So uh, one way to help us think about how we can use it in, in the classroom is to think of it as a fellow classmate or even a fellow tutor, right? So as a fellow classmate, one of the things I encourage my students to do is, okay, treat ChatGPT as another group member uh, whom you can consult, you know? like uh, Because one of the things I see is that students, they're very shy to ask some questions because they, they think it might be embarrassing or it might be a dumb question. So ChatGPT offers them a chance to clarify uh, with someone, you know. And of course, ChatGPT isn't entirely factually accurate. So one of the interesting things that will come up in the conversations as, uh, as, as they converse with the AI is that they'll say, oh, wow, the lecture says this, but ChatGPT says that. How do we square this? And it creates new opportunities for students to actually consult us. Uh, and, and what I like about it is it shows that students are really engaging with what they're learning with the AI. They're not, they're not just taking it wholesale and say, okay, you know, this is the answer. You know? So it does show that learning and critical thinking is taking place. In one of the modules, Chinese philosophy, that's where I encourage them to use it as a fellow student, right? For, for the teaching apprenticeship module, UTOP, I actually encourage them, okay, you know, like you may not know what your students might ask. So why don't you, you know, consult ChatGPT, treat ChatGPT like one of your students and, you know, just just uh, write out your talking points and uh, you know, ask it if it has any questions to ask you. And that can actually help you to prepare for, for class, right? So the, the, the big one I'm rolling out for computational reasoning, so that has 400 students, right? Is I'm training them to generate video scripts. Uh, sorry, I'm training them to generate scripts for the final video presentation uh, at the end of the semester. Yeah, uh, One of the things I noticed is that many students don't know what makes for a good 
uh, presentation, right? So getting them to reflect, uh, to critique and reflect on, on a generated piece of writing will allow them to see what are good features and bad features of writing. And uh, so, so that is the exercise. So on one hand, they will see the limits of what AI can do. They also can see how far they can go with AI, right? And on the other hand, we are teaching them how can you go further with AI use. Whoa, you've really jumped and run with this new tech. Amazing. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, I might uh, move to uh, Subayan um, and thinking about uh, how might ChatGPT enhance research work for academics because you're primarily, although you're, you are an educator, uh, you're, you're a research academic. So how might it enhance research work for academics? But on the other hand, what kind of challenges might it also pose for research? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I have used ChatGPT in my research so far is as a kind of replacement for busy work more than as a replacement for creative thinking. And I think that's where it's it has its, you know, it has most potential. That's so, for example, um, I um, need to, for my research, 40%, 30 to 40% of that is writing code. And to do that, I have to, um, you know, debug code. And any programmer will tell you that debugging code can take a lot of time, right? And often the errors are some silly semicolons here or there, which you have overlooked. And uh, ChatGPT is a brilliant way to fix your code. So you just copy-paste your code and ask ChatGPT, what's wrong with my code? This is the error I get. And it'll just tell you instantly that, oh, you've put an extra semicolon here. And so just, that just takes off so much time uh, from the whole debugging process. I've also found it useful Again, I've not tested this enough, but it's kind of promising, though it has its limitations. So when I kind of develop an argument for um, for uh, kind of, you know, following the literature review, say I develop an argument before I pose a hypothesis, uh, it's like uh, having another pair of eyes to go through it and say, is there any kind of um, logical fallacies I'm committing here? Even though it can get it wrong, it can. But when it does get it right, it's actually good feedback. So uh, it does have a few kind of false uh, negatives when it can't, uh, you know, can't identify errors that I might have made. But the errors it does identify are often correct errors. So I can then fix them of my own uh, as, as I want to. So I think that's where uh, ChatGPT's, uh, you know, use case for me lies in academia. It's just, um, it's not a replacement for creativity. Maybe someone can still still use it as that, but more as a way to outsource busy work, mm -hmm. which is really kind of, you don't want to do busy work anyway, right? When I'm writing my paper, I don't want to spend half an hour formatting my tables. That's just not intellectually stimulating enough. And why not get ChatGPT to do that for me? So that's what I've done so far. Yeah, And also interesting here how it's, and this is often what the story we're told about AI is that it will save us labor time or make us more efficient. And in Subayan's case, uh, it might even make leave more time for the intellectual human mm -hmm. work of thinking or for your uh, students, Jonathan, it might give them a kind of push them a little bit more into the creative and critical side uh, once they get the kind of fundamentals down. Um, returning to teaching, uh, some folks have suggested that the rise of chat GPT might push teaching and learning in new and innovative ways, which might dethrone writing as the primary seat of assessment. We might see the rise of more oral exams, oral debates and in-class written tests. And 
Jonathan, you already mentioned that you're using it for sort of an oral in the sense it's a video script that the students are producing. So what are your thoughts on this, that it might change how we assess students and potentially make for new potentially innovative assessments? Wow, okay. So there's a lot to unpack over here, right? Uh, I think for starters, uh, many people... Uh, associate ChatGPT like the new calculator of our times, you know, like when the calculator first came in or, you know, there was resistance among educators but slowly gained acceptance. Now, I don't think the calculator is the right uh, metaphor or right analogy to think about it because, you know, if you get better at calculator use, you just get faster at punching the buttons, right? There's no skill developed. Uh, I think a better way to think about ChatGPT is uh, maybe more like cameras and photography. You know, so when when cameras and photography came into the scene, uh, realistic painting... uh, uh, did take did suffer a bit, right? But what? Why did it drop? Because people say, oh well, the camera can take a much more realistic uh, uh, um, representation of of the subject, right? But notice that the camera didn't eliminate uh, painting altogether. In fact, art painting they went in a completely different direction. And photography itself also created a whole new field in, um, on its own. And, you know, there's this saying in photography, right, that it's not, the, it's not about the gear, it's about the photographer, right? And it's the same can be said about ChatGPT. You know, like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I and many others, uh, you know, sometimes we play with it, say, oh, okay, ChatGPT, you know, the output isn't that great. Until you meet someone who really knows how to play with ChatGPT and then you go, wow, okay, I didn't know the potential of, of the AI can be this great, right? So what, what it reveals is uh, uh, several things. Num- number one, that our students are learning how to be super, super good at it. And if we ourselves don't learn how to be as good uh, in ChatGPT as our students, then we will reach a point where students or the general population are going to say, what's the point of going to university if we can learn this from our peers, we can learn this from the internet, and we can do better than the academics, right? So so that then poses a, an existential question for us. But at the same time, I, I think it is a, if we accept that AI and writing is going to co-evolve together, then it's probably going to go in the direction of how photography became a thing and painting just took a different direction. So then we have to accept that, okay, in education, we will have to accept that some of our traditional conventional learning objectives, we may have to give that up. Uh, some of the things that we value so much, you know, like yeah, you know, certain aspects of writing, we may have to just confront it and say realistically, okay, now the AI can do a better job at it. Why don't we just focus on that? And then we move on to developing better learning objectives. Now, one of the key things that I like to say is when when I want to when I teach my students how to use ChatGPT, um, I, I'm not just teaching them uh, how to use ChatGPT per se. You know, it's like design school, right? In design school, we say we uh, the teachers teach students how to use Photoshop. But it's not just how to use Photoshop. It's how do I use Photoshop to develop a good eye for design? Now, notice, this is very interesting, right? Photoshop and photography, it's all about developing that good eye for design, which... Hey, guess what? It came from painting itself, right? The the basic fundamental principles and rules of art and painting. It is then transferred into all these other fields as well, right? So similarly, are we going to give up all writing and critical thinking? No. Uh, it, It will adapt and find itself in new forms, you know, as we teach our students how to use AI effectively, how to develop that good eye for good output, a lot of those critical thinking and writing skills that we have learned traditionally will be adapted in those contexts. 
Yeah, and I think also going back to uh, Sabayan's original sort of quick outline of what how ChatGPT works, it surely will improve the more inputs it has. Um, you know, that's an optimistic view. The more creative and interesting inputs it has, the less sort of... Uh, uh, you know, ordinary or, I mean, some people have said, okay, it can write an essay, but the essay is sort of flat or mediocre or a B. Maybe the more we put into it, the more um, it will sort of have a more lively or human uh, touch. I'll just loop back to uh, Sabayan now and um, asking about uh, perhaps some of, uh, moving back to this idea of constraints and what some of the socio-political implications of chat GPT uh, might be particularly in how its database works. Um, so it might draw on some sources and not others. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a, that's one of the I think one of the big points of concern about machine learning in general, and not just ChatGPT. Uh, so before we go into this, let's talk a bit about what it is that ChatGPT is trained on, right? So ChatGPT draws from mostly four sources of data. So the first is uh, this, uh, more than 50% of ChatGPT's training data comes from this nonprofit called Common Crawl. Uh, this it's a it's a it's come it's a it's a nonprofit organization that crawls the web in 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 a in a in an attempt to kind of make the web available for the public good. So it's basically the whole web which is there for for scraping, right? And uh, ChatGPT uh, does that. Um, uses that data to and that makes up most of its data. But as you might think this can be a very messy data. So it then adds uh, several other data sets which are slightly more structured and less messy. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's also the entire Wikipedia. Uh, a lot of, uh, so, and to think that Wikipedia does not even make up 10% of ChatGPT's training data tells you how big ChatGPT's training data is, right? So now the problem is all of these individual data sources, uh, we know that these are all historical data which means that they are encoded with societal biases, right? So it kind of shows um, dominant perspectives. It does not represent underrepresented voices. Um, books, historically, you know, women did not write books till very recently in the history of human humankind, right? Um, again, um, literate people wrote books, right? Um, that's another huge uh, bias. Um, also, uh, Wikipedia. Wikipedia has this veneer of kind of being this democratic democratic web platform, but it's really a, 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 a kind of an oligarchy of a few power editors who are who dominate the the kind of editing scene on Wikipedia. Uh, and similarly with Reddit, I'm sure, like all of these platforms, they have they, they have power structures, right? And it's so nothing in society is really without power structures. So uh, and anything really that builds off of that is should replicate the same power structures, is sure to kind of, um, you know, replicate the same hierarchies that exist in the in the pre chat GPT world, and which, uh, which is a lot of hierarchies, right? And so, um, so there are ways so and this is not really chat GPT, but machine learning in general has, has acknowledged this as a problem. So there's this new field called FATE, which is fairness, accountability, um, for transparency and ethics of AI, right? And there are conscious efforts to kind of make training data more diverse, to kind of not just do random sampling of, of what is available, but to purposely sample from underrepresented voices, from underrepresented material and so on. But even then, um, 
existence of data is a kind of bias, right? So that's, again, that's that you can not never really solve per se. So that's going to be there in ChatGPT. But thing is, um, and when you... When you're doing research, that's where I think uh, ChatGPT can be uh, one of the constraints can appear in that uh, it's really, I don't see it challenging the dominant paradigm while doing research. Right? I'll give an example. Um, so um, a lot of, even like, even in, in national sciences, right? A lot of research is um, really very um, based on creativity and strokes of genius, for example. For example, uh, like this, uh, the German uh, chemist August Kekule, he was he was the one who came up with the structure of the benzene ring, which is like this, the, one of the most greatest advancements in organic chemistry. And the way he came up with it is because he had a dream of a, a snake eating its tail. And then that led him to hypothesize what if the structure of benzene ring is a ring, right? And then he came up with hexagon structure that we have seen in chemistry books all the time. Um, can ChatGPT do that? Can it have a dream, right? Can it uh, dream about things that are so disassociated from its? Uh, maybe you know, it maybe at some point it can it can do a better job at connecting f disparate points of data, uh, really disparate points of data from different context in a way that can mimic something that comes close to creativity. But right now, I don't see that's happening, right? Right now, it's kind of uh, build. It's kind of doing what. Um, people have done before, basically. Sure, it's kind of saying it in different ways or it's kind of um, building off existing knowledge and existing knowledge does not necessarily mean that it can go in a different, radically new different direction when thinking about the world. Even if it is thinking about the world, it is thinking about the world based on what it is fed, right? So if some people say it's not thinking. Some people say it's just, it's just kind of brute force way of, uh, of um, looking at stuff and coming up with output. I don't quite agree with that. I think humans also do that a lot, right? When humans also get inspired by training data, I would say, when, when, uh, when painters are painting, it's not like they are painting in a vacuum. They are inspired by other arts, artworks, just like maybe chat GPT or generative AI techniques are. Uh, but I think the constraint right now is being able to um, connect something that is not immediately relevant to the context that a human can do, right? Like a dream to the benzene structure, right? Something like that. That's the kind of, that's, yeah, that is a, that might be a step too far for ChatGPT to, to, to take right now, but maybe in the future with even more computing power, with even more training data, maybe it can, but that's how I think it can potentially constrain research right now. Yeah, I love that story about the dream. I mean, of course, we have to wonder these human elements. So can ChatGPT dream? Does it have an unconscious? Does it have a voice? Or uh, is what's the human human element here? To take another quote from someone critical of ChatGPT, the musician Nick Cave described a ChatGPT version of his lyrics as a grotesque mockery of what it is to be human. Of course, this is an extreme response. Um, but I wonder about this. Does the lack of a human element, though ChatGPT has more of a human tone than previous iterations, which both of you have pointed out, does that lack of a human element mean that writing will might maybe lose its liveliness or that creativity to put the dream together to find the chemical um, invention? Or more importantly, will we perhaps err away from the ability to critique or judge on human structures like ethics? Um, I'm really asked, Jonathan, as you're a philosophy professor, 
how do you think it's going to affect these sort of human capacities, especially things around ethics, which, you know, are human judgments? Of course, some of us who play with ChatGPT now, we say, oh, you know, we ask an ethical question and then it'll give you the response. I'm an AI and as an AI, I do not have an opinion or whatever, right? Those are actually guardrails that the developer actually are, are coded manually into ChatGPT. Mm. But one of the things my students showed me is that, you know, these guardrails, you can always manipulate the AI to get around it. You know, it's like, you know, for example, if you, you say, I, I have a secret that I don't want to tell you, but I can manipulate you through, through, through talking to get you to reveal the secret. Likewise, I can manipulate ChatGPT to say a lot of things, to make a position on, on ethics as well. And uh, this, is, this has been happening with ChatGPT4 on Bing, right? And people are posting about it on Reddit. And some of these responses are a bit unnerving, but to be... Uh, but to be fair, what they're doing is that they're actually asking ChatGPT to role play. Imagine you are this person. What opinions would you say, right? So, and as uh, Subha was saying, right, um, it, it's what it does right now is that it's just uh, regurgitating, reiterating things that we already know from the past. But in the future, when its inferential powers actually gets better and better, it may be able to uh, make these kinds of decisions for us. So, so that is something that, that I, I will not rule out so, so quickly. Mm, fantastic. Um, Subayan, do you have any responses to Jonathan's uh, thoughts? Uh, no, no, I, I completely agree with what Jonathan's saying. I mean, I'm sure uh, this is something that, um, uh, you know, future iterations can, can kind of address. And I've seen, I don't have access to the Bing chat thing yet, but I've seen people post screenshots of really like, amazing dialogues that Bing is having with like, I mean, I think we are well past the Turing test phase now. So it's, I mean, if you just gave it to someone, they would think it's a human being talking. So uh, yeah, they haven't played with that yet. Um, but I agree. I, I think that um, uh, for its evolution, it definitely needs um, for one more data, more computing power and all that. Um, but it also kind of, I think there's a need to make it um to ensure that it doesn't blindly replicate what's fed into it, uh, right? Or to, uh, developers should ensure that. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sure they're thinking about it because I think OpenAI is a pretty um, they're a pretty conscious organization that way. Uh, in that how um, it it's not blinkered, it's not blink, it doesn't kind of. Uh, replicate dominant paradigms. Okay, so that's it for us today. So a big thank you to our guests, Jonathan Sim from the Department of Philosophy and Subayan Mukherjee from the Department of Communication and New Media. And thank you to Jeffrey, our producer, to Nisa Keshavani and Jinna Tay for putting this together. And thank you to all of you out there who have tuned in today. You can find us the Communications and New Media Program and Department on all the socials at CNMNUS. That's on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. So we hope to hear from you next time. Ciao for now. I'm Rosie Overell signing off. Goodbye. <laughs>